Hello again and welcome to the podcast from Commonwealth Magazine. I'm Michael Jonas. A Boston Olympics. You remember the excitement of those days, don't you? Then came the fallout. The secret of bid book, where to build a velodrome, whatever exactly that is, and 10 people on Twitter. It was less than two years ago that the effort collapsed under its own weight and multiple missteps by its backers. A new book provides an in-depth account of those days. It's written by Chris Dempsey, one of the founders of No Boston Olympics, the group that was instrumental in killing the Olympic bid, and Andrew Zimbalist, an economics professor at Smith College and one of the foremost authorities on the economics of Olympics and big sporting ventures. The book is called No Boston Olympics, How and Why Smart Cities Are Passing on the Torch. It's reviving memories of those dramatic days in 2015, and it's stirring up some of the same tension and acrimony. Chris Dempsey and Andrew Zimblis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. So, uh, a great read. I, I've uh, been pouring through the book all week, and uh, it, it sort of was bringing back memories. But uh, I was struck that it was really only two years ago that we were in, we were in the thick of this, and really less than two years ago that the whole Olympic bid uh, came crashing down and, and ended. Um, was it hard to sort of, you know, dig through the notes and sort of tell these stories, especially... Uh, we talk about Boston being sort of a small town, uh, and, and, and everybody kind of knows everyone, and, and, and there was a lot of uh, uh, edge to the, to the debate at the time, and, and some of that is now kind of, uh, you know, is coming to life again, I guess, in the pages of the book. How was that uh, for, for both of you? Well, Chris. for me, Michael, I mean, the Olympic debate, for better or worse, was sort of all-consuming. Uh, and I was spending, along with co-chairs like Kelly Gossett and Liam Kerr, you know, a huge share of my time on trying to combat the bid and, and develop our reasons why we were opposed and make sure we were getting that story out in the media, working to build our team. And so uh, it was really, you know, it was taking over my life, uh, again, for better or worse. And so the book actually was somewhat easy to write because it was kind of a chronicle of the day-to-day back and forth between no Boston Olympics and the boosters and the media and all the government players that were involved. Uh, and I hope that people enjoy kind of reading that narrative and reliving, especially the 200 days between when the USOC chose Boston and when the bid actually died. As an academic who is not accustomed to doing very much other than sitting at my desk and, and working on my computer, not being directly involved in, in political action and, and political change, um, it was uh, an unusual experience for me to to write the book with Chris. Um, Chris handled most of the narrative, by the way, because he was actually involved in, in most of the day-to-day Yeah, I was going to ask how you broke but, that down, the work of the book itself. One of the things that I have to say was particularly difficult for me in writing the book is that I've never, as an academic who hasn't been directly integrated in, into the fabric of, of a movement, um, I'm not accustomed to seeing myself in a narrative about something I'm trying to analyze and, and to describe. And we uh, necessarily had to insert ourselves because we, we played a role, Chris in particular played a role, but I was involved in a variety of different things. And we, I had to, so I had to des- describe myself and Chris had to describe himself. And you, you don't want the, the narrative to turn into a hagiography. Hey, um, you don't want to gloat. Uh, but by the same token, you, you want to present your perspective on, on an issue. So that, w- that was a little bit uncomfortable. Um, 
And uh, other than those things, it was a pleasure to, to work with Chris, who, in addition to all the other wonderful talents he has, is a wonderful writer. Yeah, and that, that, that came through. I mean, there was great storytelling in there. But, I mean, I guess some of the, some of the drama, you know, I, I guess had to do with the, uh, you know, what seemed like the sort of bumbling, frankly, of the, of the bid by the Boston 2024 folks. And, uh, you know, some of them don't, don't, don't come out looking that great in the story. Uh, was that hard? I, you know, I'm sure you've noticed this week even uh, Mayor Walsh has already jumped back in. I feel like we're back at it. It's 2015 and, uh, and, and we're going at it. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> he, he said it was a couple of opportunists. He here has written, are writing a book. Uh, you know, the book's actually already done. Uh, I mean, what was your reaction when you, when you heard those comments? Do you feel like he still doesn't get sort of what, what happened there? Or, or how did you read that? Well, I was certainly disappointed to um, be called an opportunist. I think that that was a little bit unfair. I wonder if uh, the mayor were asked that question again, whether he'd say the same thing. My sense is that he does appreciate that people on both sides of the Olympic debate were people that care about Boston and care about Massachusetts and wanted to see what was best for the city. Um, and, you know, I, I work at Transportation for Massachusetts now. I have a lot of overlap with um, what the city is doing. They're doing some great things in transportation. So we'll have an opportunity to work together, I hope, going forward. And as the bid sort of fades to the past, uh, you know, whether there's uncomfortable history in there or not, um, I think we'll, we'll find ourselves on the same side. Uh, I will, at least, as a lot of the boosters on other issues. Can, can I add, uh, whereas I, I agree with the sentiments that uh, Chris is expressing, that I think that it's, it's very disappointing to have the mayor of Boston engage in these childish ad hominem descriptions of us or anybody else. It's just inappropriate. And look, he, and, and we chronicled this, I think, very well in the book, he basically blew it. He, he threw democracy out the window. He was misleading and, and deceptive in, in his comments. He was also uninformed in his comments. One of the things he said in, in, in that interview that, that you referred to is that um, there were many falsehoods in our book. But he also said that we were in the, he described us as in the process of writing the book. He hasn't read the book. Why is he accusing us of, of falsehoods? So I, this is the same kind of, of misinformation, I think, that he engaged in two years ago. And frankly, uh, th this, is, this is not a moment in history that, that he should be reliving. Uh, the best thing would be for him to apologize. But if he can't do that, then he should just forget about it and, and make no comments at all. Yeah, and I, I want to go back, um, and this is something that I think really sort of puts the mayor in the, in the middle of, of the story here. And, and ask you about uh, a term that you introduce in the book and then used repeatedly, and the term is the booster's dilemma. Um, and uh, I found it pretty powerful and, and descriptive in reading it, but can you just give, give, your, uh, give your quick uh, you know, take on what, what you mean by that, that sure. term? So the booster's dilemma is a situation that really they put themselves in, which is that they need to please the IOC and meet the exacting requirements International of, the, Olympic Committee. of the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, while at the same time trying to please the folks at home, the taxpayers and the residents who care about what's going to happen to their city. And sometimes those two forces pull in the completely opposite directions. 
So the, or, or often, I guess you would say, right? Often. And, and there's two really good examples of that. One is around transparency and openness. So the IOC and the USOC, which is the United States Olympic Committee that work together on these bids, they require that the bids not be made public. They require that there not be public meetings in early parts of the process because they want decisions being made without the public there. Of course, Bostonians love being heard from early and often. We like to have input and we don't want decisions to be made behind closed doors. So that's a, that was a point of tension and I think it's one where it was very clear in 2014 that the boosters were sort of leaning towards the IOC and keeping the IOC happy. An even better example of that is of course the taxpayer guarantee. So the International Olympic Committee requires that every host city sign a contract that says that the city taxpayers are responsible for covering overruns. And of course, taxpayers at home don't want to sign that contract. It's not in their interest in any way. But the boosters get caught in the middle. It was a very important moment for us in the process when it became clear that Boston 2024 was going to have to have the mayor sign that contract. And once we, once we knew that, we knew that there was no getting around that we could hammer that point over and over. It doesn't matter what promises are being made, it's gonna be taxpayers who are left on the hook. And I think that really resonated with people in Massachusetts. And I think this, I mean, this idea of the booster's dilemma, which is really a structure that you're saying the Olympic process imposes upon host cities or would-be host cities, um, it, it also sort of gets to some of the, uh, you know, for better or worse, or without casting even judgment on it, some of the uh, uh, you know, lack of candor, you could say, out of City Hall, or you could go farther and say if there was sort of, you know, deception or not sort of full accounting for what's going on, uh, you know, I think there's a way you could look at that in a little bit of a sympathetic light and say, you know, Marty Walsh comes in, uh, this all starts to unfold very quickly after he takes office. Um, you know, he was a guy who uh, was elected without the support uh, of the sort of you know, downtown business community and the big shots. And suddenly there's a chance to sort of play on this big world stage. The business community is strongly behind it. And it's a chance for him to, you know, sort of maybe show, uh, you know, sort of build some relations and alliances with those folks. And, uh, you know, as much as we can see all the pitfalls and, and uh, you know, problems that he ran into by going along with it, you could also sort of play out what would have happened if he'd said out of the gate, no, we're just not going to do this. That, I mean, you could imagine how he and his advisors would have thought, well, that's going to put us, you know, in a pretty bad spot as we start out, you know, this tenure leading the city. No? You're that, shaking your head a little, Chris. That's a sympathetic spin. Uh, and yeah. everything you said is reasonable. It's, uh-huh. it's too bad that politics work like that in our country. Uh-huh. Um, it, it, Mar- Marty Walsh is, is an all-time trade unionist. Um, he talks about representing people. He, he criticizes Donald Trump. And one would hope that there would be a modicum of integrity, uh, even if at the end of the day he was going to make compromises with, with uh, members of the business community. Uh, you know, he, he signed the joinder agreement with, with the USOC, which basically said if the city is chosen by the USOC, then they will meet all of the IOC's requirements. And one of those is to take on the financial responsibility of a cost overrun or a revenue shortfall. Another was, believe it or not, what we call the gag order, or what was called the gag order, was to not allow any city employees to say anything critical of the IOC or the Boston Olympic bid or the USOC. 
Another is to take down all of the signage in town and make it clear so the IOC can put up its, its sponsors there for a month before the Olympics, during the Olympics, and three weeks after the Olympics. Another is that there'll be no taxation of any Olympic activity or importation of construction materials for building Olympic venues. And it goes on and on. And he signed that. And he, he said he represented to the people of Boston that he had read the bid, the first bid. And, it, of course, it later turned out that if he had read the first bid, that meant that City Hall was in possession of it and it, it could be requisitioned and, and made available to the public, at uh, which point he said, oh, no, I never read the bid. Somebody summarized it for me. Right. And, there was and a so, point where know, they said it was summarized, but there, they said they were not in possession of the book. I mean, it, it, it really, again, it was one of those moments where the kind of contortions going on and uh, and to borrow appropriately the metaphor, the kind of, uh, you know, sort of gymnastics uh, you know, at play didn't reflect very well on, on, on the city or on Boston 2024 at all. Um, and I guess back to the booster's dilemma, one thing I was going to ask, you know, we're sort of taking apart that term, but even uh, a, apart from the term itself, just the use of the term booster throughout is, again, uh, something that, that you all chose to use. Uh, you didn't say supporters or even backers. I mean, they were backers of it. But boosters sort of... Uh, you know, it has a connotation of uh, of kind of uh, uh, you know what was it? Alan Greenspan's term: irrational exuberance. I mean, that, <laughs> it's not totally grounded in yeah. in just the facts, but it's 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 trying to sort of advance something even maybe beyond There's what credibly can be done. Yeah. I, well, look, I think that that's fair in this case. I mean, Boston twenty twenty four rolled out a series of gorgeous graphics of what the stadium would look like and what Olympic Boulevard would look like. And we all remember seeing those on TV and saying, wow, that's impressive. Look at the fireworks going off over the stadium with our beautiful city in the background. Boston 2024 could tell you the date of the opening ceremonies in the summer of 2024. So they had the exciting emotional details down, the ones that would encourage people to get behind this bid. And yet some of the fundamental questions on financing, on who is going to cover the risk, were never answered. So I think it's absolutely fair to call it boosterism. Um, I think it was uh, separated from the facts. And it was also, unfortunately, held back from the public on a number of occasions. Um, You'll remember, Michael, that the bid that was shared with the public found that revenues and expenses matched exactly. And in fact, the bid that was... Magically, you might say, right? Magically. Um, in fact, what we now what we learned, and we learned it only in the waning days of Boston 2024, was that the bid that they had shown to the to the USOC actually showed a multi hundred million dollar deficit. I think it was three or four hundred million dollar deficit, and that they said, "Oh, geez, we can't share that with the public. The one we should have to share to the public, we have to make sure that our revenues increase to to cover those costs." So there was. It's fair to say, I think, intentional deception on the part of Boston 2024, and, and so I think that booster label applies. Now, again, there can be some sympathy that they were caught in the booster's dilemma and they were trying to please the public while also pleasing the USOC, but we also have to remember that you know they put themselves in that situation. Um, there were other visions and other ideas that could have been embraced by our civic leaders and our elected leaders, and instead they chose to embrace this one uh, with, I think, a lot of drawbacks at the end of the day. Right. I mean, at, at one time, uh, there was talk that that you that you in, in No Boston Olympics uh, set forth some conditions or ways that you could maybe consider whether this could be a good idea, and and you you started being referred to as uh, maybe Boston Olympics. Uh, but again, it it seemed like even though those were kind of some forward looking ideas for how the how the bid should proceed, 
Uh, they were frankly unlikely to be be uh, okayed by the USOC or the IOC, right? I mean, I'm not saying it was a bad faith effort, and and I and, and as you wrote, it was an effort to sort of dispel the idea that that you were kind of no to everything, right? Yeah, so I mean, the best example of that is that we suggested that Boston 2024 reject the taxpayer guarantee. Now, there's only one city in the history of the Olympics that has successfully rejected that guarantee, and that's Los Angeles in 1984, which partly contributed to the successful games that they had there. The reason that Los Angeles was able to do that was because for the 1984 games, there were only two cities bidding, Los Angeles and Tehran, Iran which dropped out because it was on the verge of the Iranian Revolution. So Los Angeles... I thought you were going to say because it was too warm, the weather, <laughs> yeah. you know, and the Summer Olympics there. So, so Los Angeles was the only bidder, and as you know, if you're showing up at an auction and you're the only bidder, you're going to get a really good deal. And L.A. was able to dictate the terms to the IOC. So we, we thought because there was a precedent there, it was not at all unreasonable for Boston 2024 to also reject that guarantee. In fact, I believe that the boosters would have done that if they thought they could get away with it, if they thought that um, that was viable. But what they were told by the IOC is that that requirement had to be there, it had to be in place, and they would never have a bid accepted if they didn't sign that document. And so thus, because their goal was winning the bid at all costs, they were willing to go along with it. And and the other thing that really comes uh, clear in the book is that the the taxpayer guarantee that was always originally framed as something that the city initially committed to to doing, uh, it became increasingly clear that, that this was really going to be something that the state was going to have to be on the hook for. And, uh, and, and I think even at the time, people could see uh, Governor Charlie Baker, uh, you know, the wheels turning there with, with his recognition of that. And he was, uh, you know, very cool to this whole proposal from the start and, and played it safe and neutral. Uh, Eventually, he and other state house leaders commissioned a study that was going to be done by an outside group to sort of give them the objective uh, assessment mm-hmm. on which to, to 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 render some kind of a, a rattle, judgment. Rattle group, right? But I was also, I, I mean, do you think that Charlie Baker really realized from the start this was a bad idea? I always felt that he he really didn't didn't see any way that this this looked like a like a smart move for the for the state. So. My guess is that's probably right. Um, I certainly don't know him well, but having had a few interactions with him, I think he is someone, and this is his, you know, this is his public persona, is that he's kind of a Mr. Fix-It. He wants to get the basics right, doesn't want to build a bunch of new things until the things that he has and the state has already are fixed. So I think that's very true. It, it makes the USOC's decision to choose Boston even more curious because you'll remember, and this is, of course, the first part of our book, that... The USOC chose Boston the day of Governor Baker's inauguration in January of 2015. And you would think that the USOC and folks from the city and their backers would have at least made a phone call to the incoming governor and said, uh, is this something you're going to get behind? Because we know that it's going to require all this investment from the state level. So it was surprising that they had the announcement on Inauguration Day that they chose Boston and that Governor Baker was, I think, caught a little bit off guard by the whole process. Right. But you do say at one point, uh, I mean, you're saying you're not 100% sure what, you know, what was going on in his mind, but you do report in the book uh, that um, this Brattle report, which I think came out maybe in August after the bid had been pulled and the whole thing was over with, 
that uh, that he, uh, from what you understand, had actually seen a draft of it. Se- uh, several drafts. And so again, he was he was sort of well aware of the direction things were going, and it just seemed like. Uh, you know, he didn't have any particular interest in alienating the business leaders who were the boosters, uh, uh, and he sort of thought, I guess, maybe one could conjecture this thing is going to kind of collapse of its own weight, and he was just going to sort of stand back and watch that happen. Remember also that the USOC, USOC issued an ultimatum to, to Baker that he had to, sometime that week of J- July 27th or 28th, 2015, he had to make a commitment that the state was going to stand behind the bid financially. And he knew that he wasn't, in my view, because he had seen drafts of the Brattle report. He knew that he wasn't going to stand behind it. What apparently happened is that he called Walsh up and he said, I'm not going to stand behind it, but I'll, I'll give you, uh, here, here, here's, a, here's a safety rap, uh, raft. And he threw it to him. And so Walsh was then able to go and make a speech where he said, the way things stand today, I cannot offer the financial guarantee. And then the USOC said, okay, we're pulling pulling the bid. Right. So there was a lot of sort of behind-the-scenes kind of orchestration of the theater, you would say, the political theater that went on in those closing days or weeks. And um, I mean, the other thing, you know, sort of back to the sort of small-town aspect of Boston, I was just struck by uh, things like, uh, you know, you had a relationship with Rich Davey who came on uh, to sort of as the head sort of chief executive of Boston 2024 for a period of time and, and said that you were even, you know, exchanging texts or, or phone messages during this even while you were really, uh, I mean, you were kind of basically his worst nightmare, uh, you, you know, you and the organization. I mean, you guys were what was standing between them and sort of the smooth sailing they were hoping for. I mean, I guess I was also struck, Andrew Zimblis, that uh, that you have a relationship uh, with uh, Larry Lucchino, who was the CEO of the Red Sox. Yes. Uh, I presume it's from your work on sports economics and, yes. and his... And I've known, yeah, I've known Larry since uh, his Camden Yards days back in the early 1990s. Right. And so at the very time when, uh, uh, you know, John Fish, the head of Suffolk Construction, was being... Uh, Sort of uh, relieved of of his duties as the head of the of of the whole thing, he was seen as not probably maybe the most politic leader, and there was talk of who could come in. The Globe had a big front page story, sort of breathlessly suggesting that Larry Lucchino might ride to the rescue, uh, and uh, he ended up not doing that. And just within a few days of that, uh, I learned from the book uh, you were invited and Chris accompanied you uh, to uh, you know one of the owners or management suites at, at Fenway Park for a game uh, there that uh, uh, Linda Pizzuti-Henry uh, was also at. Right. Yeah, so there's a lot of intersections here. Uh, you know, I, I think we describe uh, Larry's, Larry's predicament uh, pretty clearly in the book. Uh, Larry, like everybody else, doesn't want to alienate business leaders and doesn't want to alienate the, the mayor, yet uh, Boston 2024 was, was in need of a... Uh, knight on a white horse, and and Larry, because of his background, could have been that person. He actually, Larry called me up before the the evening game at at the park, and we talked on the phone about it, but then we talked again uh, with Chris at at Fenway Park and and with Linda. And John Henry, of course, uh, the the principal owner of the Red Sox, has been for some time now the the owner of the Globe, and he was behind putting together the debate that, that Chris and I had with, uh, with Steve Paliuka and uh, Doc, Dan Doktoroff. Right, a debate that uh, you write. Uh, you know, it's hard to say what were the kind of uh, 
the the lowlights for Boston 2024. That was certainly one of them when they uh, they brought in the the New York Ringer. Uh, it just didn't it didn't it didn't go well. Well, I recall that Dr. Off in that debate asserted because he's also on the USOC. He asserted that the USO this is just two or three days before the bid was pulled. He asserted that the USOC was one hundred percent behind the bid. And that we we've certainly learned was not the case uh, at that point. Um, I, I'm wondering what you've heard just in the days since the books come out. If you, I don't know uh, if you've heard from people, are people, you know, sort of reacting positively to having a, the the account of this written? Have you heard some blowback? I mean, we certainly have all heard the mayor's reaction. But have you heard from other people? I mean, you, again, you had some tough stuff that you had to write in there or, yeah. you know, your your pal Connor Units, who was one of the original co-founders, uh, ended up uh, sort of at a pivotal, pivotal moment uh, right before another sort of mini debate that was being held, uh, sort of announcing that he was not only, you know, leaving the group, but was kind of becoming himself a booster, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, you know, you, your, your little sub-headline there sort of is, uh, I think, betrayal and reinforcement was uh, what, uh, what was listed there. So, um, look, I mean, I think there are definitely people that are not happy that this history is being retold. But Andy and I felt that it was an important story to tell, um, not just because of what happened in Boston, but what Boston has now meant for other cities around the world. So since Boston rejected the bid, Hamburg, Germany, Rome, Italy, and Budapest, Hungary have all dropped their bids, and they've all pointed to Boston to say, smart cities are saying no, we should say no too. And in fact, we helped advise opponents in all three of those cities. So this is really a story about Boston being a leader and setting an example for these other cities. And also just about regular Bostonians coming together. Um, you know, I was often the face of no Boston Olympics, but we were made up of so many other volunteers and people of all walks of life who came together and said this is not what they wanted for the future of their city. They didn't like the direction the bid was taking and they wanted to stand up for themselves and for their communities. Um, so the reaction from those folks has been great and we've got something like 150 or 160 RSVPs for our book launch event. I imagine that many of those folks will be folks that supported us, and it'll be a bit of a reunion of sorts. Um, so that's been really exciting and um, really humbling to hear. And I guess one question, I mean, are you, uh, were you really su surprised that, that you pulled this thing off? I mean, throughout the book, you, uh, on the one hand, you, you make it clear you felt like you had the arguments and the facts on your side, but you know whether it was the enormous spending disparities. I mean, just at every, by every measure, the kind of David and Goliath dynamics here would still seem to have you know argued for putting your money on the, you know on 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 the boosters. Well, we draw a parallel in the book to the Stop the Highway movement in the late '60s and early '70s, which was another grassroots movement that was going up against the sitting governor, against the Chamber of Commerce, against many folks that were saying this needs to be the future. This is the direction we need to go. And I grew up in Brookline Village with stories of the Stop the Highway movement. You said your parents were involved in that, yeah, they right? Were, yeah, they were. They're certainly followers of it. Mm -hmm. And um, they used to tell me stories about uh, what that would have meant for our neighborhood in Brookline Village. So um, I always had the faith in, uh, in people in greater Boston to really be able to weigh the pros and cons. And um, I felt like if we could get those facts out and get our message out, we'd have at least some success, even if we didn't stop the bid. We could maybe make the bid better in certain ways or less harmful in certain ways. Um, and then at a certain point in the process, it just became clear that 
uh, we actually might be able to kill it off entirely and move on. And that became our goal and our focus. Uh, and we were obviously glad that it ended when it did because, you know, Kelly and I were, were volunteers. We didn't have jobs. We were drawing down on savings. And That's we Kelly Gossett. Kelly Gossett. Yeah. We weren't able to um, continue that forever. Uh, and so, uh, the, you know, the end of Boston 2024 couldn't come soon enough for us. Right. And, and Andrew Zimblist, maybe you could just sort of pick up a little bit on what Chris was saying about the impact that this has had uh, internationally. And you've spent, uh, although Chris kind of dove into this as a resident here and someone concerned about it, you've been a scholar who's looked at these questions and written uh, a book previously on, on, on the Olympics. So what is, uh, I mean, what, how pivotal uh, do you think this Boston 2024 experience how pivotal has it been so, to what's what's going on now in the in the Olympic uh, movement? Yeah, so the, or maybe the, lack of movement. Really, since the year two thousand, there's been a decline in the number of cities that are bidding, and that was seen very dramatically in two thousand and fifteen, uh, when they were making the decision about who was going to host the twenty twenty two Winter Olympics, and four European cities dropped out, leaving the IOC with a choice between Almaty, Kazakhstan, and Beijing, China. Uh, both of them with very deep, profound problems. And then we have in, in this Olympic a bid for 2024, we have Budapest and, and Rome and Hamburg dropping out. And although they were never an official bidder, uh, the city council in, in Toronto had scheduled a vote to become an official bidder, but then they decided not to uh, after speaking with, with Chris and me. And uh, I, I think that this is what's, what's one of the things that's special about the Boston situation is that. We, w- we went through a period of roughly seven months uh, after the bid was awarded uh, where there was an intense mobilization and educational campaign, and the voice of the people got heard. And I, I think that that resonates and will resonate for a very long time. The Olympic movements in, in, in so different countries. Another concerts, shot heard around the world from another Boston? Another shot heard around the world, exactly. The Olympic movements in, in, in very difficult straits right now um, – they, they passed several years ago in December of 2014 something they call Agenda 2020 that was supposed to be a big reform and make it more palatable for cities to bid and, and more economically feasible. Uh, but it was really window dressing. And Thomas Bach has been speaking, the IOC president has been speaking uh, practically on a weekly basis talking about how they need more reforms. And one of the, one of the things they're apparently going to do in September when, the, when they vote in Lima, Peru, about who will be awarded the games and have a choice now between Los Angeles and Paris, is I think that they're going to award the 24 games to Paris and the 28 games to, to Los Angeles, in part because those are the only two cities that are robust and, and able to, to bid to, to host the games without deep embarrassment. And they're also not willing at this point to go through the embarrassment again of another bidding charade, uh, this grand auction that they conduct every four years. So the Olympic movement is under a lot of pressure, and I think there'll be some more changes. Uh, hopefully, there'll they'll be profound changes. And I guess I was struck in the in the history that you say uh, the sort of start of the modern Olympics in back in Greece in I guess was it 1896 in yeah. Athens that uh, uh, you know there was there, there it was fairly prophetic in the sense that there were overruns to that uh, that that those games and also that there was even a call at that time that we've heard again yeah. now that let's just cite them here permanently. Uh, I don't know if they were thinking about all of the complexities of a, of a 21st century games. But again, we've been hearing you know, the illogic of having cities around the world compete in this, as you call it, this you know, incredibly expensive auction uh, that is essentially decided by, by uh, these elites. Uh, so I, I don't know if there's going to be 
a lesson from that. Well, look, so in 1896, uh, that's before the invention of the radio, the television, internet, air travel. It may have made some sense at that time to rotate the games around the world so that people could experience them and enjoy them. But today, the vast, vast majority of people that experience the Olympic Games do it on television. And it really doesn't matter where you have them. They can have a, they can have a television show that, that they can enjoy. So I don't think there's much of a case for having a, a games rotate around anymore. So last question for you, Chris. Um, I see in the, in the foreword of the book, Jim Browdy uh, writes that sort of all of this poses the question that I think was kicking around at that time and, and even since then still, and that is sort of, are we the city of no? And, and how, do you, how do you answer that question? To me, we are definitely not the city of no. I think Bostonians have a proud history of embracing new ideas, whether that's the first public school, the first public park, the first subway, or even in modern times, things like marriage equality, where we were the first state to say yes to marriage equality. So we say yes to good ideas, um, but we say no to bad ideas. And we're very good, for the most part, about having that public debate and that conversation to weigh the pros and cons. I think it's very important to separate a big idea from a good idea. Just because an idea is a big one and the Olympic idea was an enormous one does not mean it's a good one. does not mean it's the right thing for our community. So, uh, I, again, I think Bostonians are very open to it. In fact, just look at the polling, right? So the polling in January of 2015 said that Bostonians supported it. Uh, they supported the bid. And what we saw is that as they learned more and more about the bid, and what it entailed for them and their communities, things like the taxpayer guarantee, that they decided that the bid was no longer something they were interested in and support began to drop. So it was that educational process that really made a difference. It was those facts coming to light. Um, And I think Bostonians should be incredibly proud about the decision that we made ultimately as a community. Okay. And, uh, well, I just want to thank you both for coming in. Uh, It was a great conversation. Uh, So uh, Chris Dempsey, Andrew Zimblis, thanks for joining us here on the Codcast. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. And uh, you can hear the Codcast every week from Commonwealth Magazine. Again, I'm Michael Jonas. Uh, Check us out uh, via SoundCloud or iTunes. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week. I guess you have to have a problem if you want to. Then a contraption.